um, let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Father, for this opportunity to come together, Lord. And I pray, Father God, for each and every woman here, Lord, and those listening, that you would just speak through me, Lord, and touch their hearts, their minds, their spirit, Lord. Give them peace and comfort, Father God, and an awareness, Lord, of what your word is and how we are to live your word daily, Father God. We thank you so much for all you do for us, Lord, and we praise you for who you are. In your most holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, ladies. It is a privilege to be here tonight to share with you our woman's study for February, uh, covering James chapter 2, verses 1 through 26. And our study tonight is titled, Subtract Partiality, Add Perfect Works Equals Joy. In the book of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he speaks about favoritism or partiality and how God forbids it. There is nothing more hurtful and painful than for someone to experience rejection, lack of love, and care, lack of love and care from another individual. None of us should ever believe that we are above someone else or holier than another person because we don't like the way they do things since it's not the way we feel it should be done. Everyone needs to be shown love, compassion, patience, and forgiveness. When we hurt someone with our words or behavior, we want to be forgiven or given a chance to explain ourselves. So many times we have a preconceived idea that certain people just don't appeal to us. Ask too many questions. The list goes on and on. We avoid them when we see them. Some may have been dealing with something in their own lives that has affected how they relate to others around them. My point is that we all need to stop thinking about how we do things or would handle situations such as misunderstandings, feeling left out, or just straight out being annoyed with someone's personality. God's word tells us to follow the golden rule. From Matthew 7 Verse 12 in the New Living Translation. Do unto others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. I would now like to share from the Life Application Study Guide various questions that were asked regarding James chapter 2 and how I answered them by what I read. The definition of partiality as James 2.1 states, is reflect judging or showing favoritism based on external appearance, motivated by hope of personal gain. What is the main message of the book of James? The message of James is that those who have been truly saved through the gospel must manifest that salvation in practical ways in their lives. A transformed life of love for others should be the result of experiencing God's love. So, the ways that we show favoritism are listed below as it is inconsistent with Christ's teaching, it results from evil thoughts, 
It belittles people made in God's image. It is a byproduct of selfish motives. It goes against the biblical definition of love. It shows a lack of mercy to those less fortunate. It is hypocritical. Bottom line, it is sin. There's some questions that were asked, and you have an opportunity to give your answer to these questions. The first one said, describe a situation when a teacher showed favoritism in class. How did the class know about it, and how did it make you feel? Well, I haven't been in school in almost 50 years, so I'm going to go to the next best thing that um, I can remember, and it was this. Quite a few years back, I witnessed partiality so evident in the way some of the women were treated in church. Some were invited to get along, to get involved in church functions and get-togethers outside of the church, and others were never asked if they were interested in getting involved. It's hurtful and discouraging and can make you feel like you don't have anything to contribute of value. Second, what are some of the ways adults continue to play favorites at home, at work, or in government? For me, I see parents can have a way of making their kids feel unloved, undervalued, and insecure when they feel a child isn't living up to their expectations of how they behave, how they look, or even how they show their love. There's nothing sadder than a child growing up and feeling unloved, unnoticed, or unappreciated by their parent, and these feelings of sadness and disappointment can last a lifetime. For what reason is favoritism to the rich inconsistent with believing in Christ? In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, James condemns acts of favoritism. Often we treat a well-dressed, impressive-looking person better than someone who looks poor. We do this because we would rather identify with successful people than with apparent failures. The irony, as James reminds us, is that the supposed winners may have gained their impressive style at our expense. In addition, the rich find it hard to identify with the Lord Jesus, who came as a humble servant. Are you easily impressed by status, wealth, or fame? Are you partial to the haves while ignoring the have-nots? This attitude is sin. God views all people as equals, and if he favors anyone, it is the poor and the powerless. We should follow his example. Another question was, is God's attitude to the rich and the poor? I'm sorry, what is God's attitude to the rich and the poor? If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. How does loving your neighbor as yourself relate to showing favoritism at church? We must treat all people as we would want to be treated. We should not ignore the rich because then we would be withholding our love. But we must not favor them for what they can do for us while ignoring the poor who can offer us little in return. Why are the rich usually treated with special favor in the world? 
because the world bases success on wealth. The more money you have, the more successful you are. We are often partial to the rich because we are mistakenly assume we mistakenly assume that riches are a sign of God's blessing and approval. But God does not promise us earthly rewards or riches. In fact, Christ calls us to be ready to suffer for him and give up everything in order to hold on to eternal life. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Luke 12, 14 to 34, and 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 speak of this. We will have untold riches in eternity if we are faithful in our present life. James is echoing the consistent teaching of the Old and New Testament in this passage that God has a heart of compassion for the poor and destitute. He is a God rich in mercy who delights in caring for those who don't count for much in the world's eyes. All Christians have received undeserved mercy from God and are called by God to express mercy to those in need. That's why favoritism to the rich is so unacceptable. It values that which God says is unimportant. Be very careful in your personal life and in your church to treat people according to God's value rather than the values of the world. Today, most churches would not usher people to good or bad seats, but what other ways might people favor the rich in church? I saw um, a study that Tony Evans did on elitism, where he stated that a very wealthy man came into his church and wanted to serve in his church. And Tony told him he could start out with simple jobs around the church and see where he would end up. And this man said, I serve on several boards of different companies, and I want to serve on your board. And Tony Evans said, that's not the way it's done. And the man left. Unfortunately, people want to get in good with those who are affluent, own their own businesses, etc., believing that in doing so they may profit from that friendship. For what reasons do people show favoritism to the poor? For me, sadly, I believe people will show favoritism just to make themselves look good to the people around them, like, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome, you know. And a lot of times it just right there, you know, they don't go any further. In what ways does God show favoritism to the poor? Because the poor don't have the finances to buy someone's affections, whatever a poor person does is to be done to show the love of God, to share the blessings one person receives with someone else who could not repay that person back for what the Lord put in their heart to do. And so many times I know we will encounter people here at church and they may be going through something and, you know, the Holy Spirit starts speaking to us. What can you do? How can you help out? You know, and we need to take what he's saying and, and offer what God shows us, you know, even if it's the smallest thing. Hey, I, I can help you. I'll give you a right to work. Uh, do you need some groceries? If you need your kids, watch for a little while, whatever it is. We, we always have something that we can offer, and it doesn't cost a lot. Let's see. 
Um, how does God's view of wealth compare with your view? What are some specific areas in which you need to align your thinking with God's about wealth and poverty? Me, myself, I love how the Lord has put it in my heart. The enjoyment of giving to others. To love on and pray for others, to encourage others. We don't have to be wealthy monetarily because we as believers are wealthy with the love and knowledge of our Lord's word. Believe me, that kind of wealth will last for all eternity. And again, I can't emphasize enough that our time at, you know, there are times in our life where, oh gosh, if I start talking to that person, I'm going to be there for a while and I really got to get here, there, whatever. You know what? You can sacrifice that whatever and stop and just let them talk. Let them share. Let them cry. Cry with them. Whatever you need to do. But let them know that they're important enough for you to stay and listen to what they have to share. Would a person feel accepted in your church? Yes. Fortunately, our church body is filled with wonderful believers who are willing to do for others. And I've seen it time and time again. It's very rare in this church that you see someone that isn't willing to stop and do for someone else. This one's a little tough for me right now to say, but I have to be honest. Who have you snubbed or favored, perhaps without being aware of it at the time? I know that I have snubbed a person or two during my 42 years of being a sinner saved by grace. In the beginning, I was so irritated with an individual that no matter what they did, everything bothered me about them. It took me a good amount of time before I said, Okay, Lord, I know you're speaking to me. I need to change my attitude about this person. And he taught me to be so loving, kind, and compassionate to this person because I needed to be the person God created me to be, that witness to that person. And I have to declare, it was the most amazing feeling of freedom and joy I have ever experienced when that happened. In what other ways can you apply this principle of not showing favoritism based on what the world considers important? By loving each other and every person you encounter on a daily basis with patience, brotherly love, compassion, and kindness, we can begin to make a conscious effort to show God's love to them and not unfair treatment. Because truly, we don't know what's going on in their personal life, where they're at right, right then and there. You go to the market, the checker has this bad attitude. You see a mom just up to here with her kids, and they're going crazy, whatever. But you don't realize that checker's daughter is in the hospital sick, and she has to work. You know? I heard that from somebody in this church who shared that. 
And, you know, I mean, I see moms. I have grandkids. I have to go run errands. I take my granddaughter. She's going to be three, that little princess. And, you know, there's times. If I grandma doesn't make time for her nap, when I have to go out, oh, <laughs> there's a price to pay because she's tired. She doesn't want to be in the store, you know. And I got to love her. I got to have patience because I'm showing other people around me. You know, this is how you're supposed to treat these little angels, you know. But anyway, okay, let me go on. I could divert. <laughs> um, let's see, where was I? Um, these, these are things that we all need to consider. And I'm sorry if I'm talking too fast when I get nervous. So anyway, I'm going to slow down a little. The first thing is, are riches ever a sign of God's favor? How much of our prayer life is given to pursuing material requests? I mean, come on. Oh, Lord, please, that jacket in the store was beautiful. Make it happen. I need it, Lord. You know I need it. You know. No, no. <laughs> anyway, let me go on. <laughs> Why do you think God gives such a priority to the poor? Why doesn't God simply bless them with more material things? Why doesn't God always answer your prayers for material blessings? Why does James call the command to love your neighbor as yourself the royal law? In James 2.8, it says, In what ways does it summarize all the laws governing human relationships? What changes would this make in how you interact with your spouse, children, or a close friend? And I have to add here, I recently married, and, um, you know, preparing for the study and a wedding and moving into a house and putting things where they all belong, you know, I had to be that image of, Patience, care, love, and I mean, you know, we have to remember we always are that example to whoever's around us, our family, a neighbor, a stranger. When something happens, how are we going to respond? Are we going to get angry, upset, impatient, and totally blow our witness? I don't want to do that anymore. I've done that way too long. I, I have to be different. I do. And I pray that each and every one of you desire that. You can be more patient, more loving, and stop before you respond or speak a word and say, Lord, take over, because it's important. It's important what comes out of our mouth to give that love, that respect, that picture of who God is in our life to someone. Let's make it a beautiful picture. Who will receive mercy from God? Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or sit on the floor, how does this relate to salvation by faith alone? In what areas of your life has your faith led you to be more merciful? 
Why is a person who breaks just one law guilty of breaking them all? For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. And that's from James 2.10 and 11. Now we go on to faith without good deeds. I'm sorry. Well, let me start again. Faith without good deeds is dead. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his action when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Didn't God provide a sacrifice for Abraham? And his son was able to leave with him. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as a body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Pastor Joe just taught on that, about the dead bones and how they can all come back together, but without him breathing life into us, we're dead. What does James mean by good works? James is describing any kind of work from works of kindness, such as giving food to someone who is hungry, to on-the-job work, such as increasing the sustainable yield of rice patties. He can and will provide through us to help this person. Our faith should always be in Jesus Christ to lead and guide us in all our endeavors. So remember, any time that the Lord shows you a need, ask him, Lord, you want me to do it? How can I do it? Because honestly, it might be something so simple and so easy, and you'll miss that blessing from him. Because that person isn't the only one getting blessed. The Lord is going to bless us because we're being obedient. And in Hebrews 11, 1 through 6 in the New King James Version, Now faith 
is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Faith is confidence or trust in God and his promises. Here are some more questions regarding faith and deeds, perfect works from the study guide. First, how do you feel about salesmen who try to sell you something that they probably wouldn't use themselves? I know for me, I wouldn't trust the product because if they're not willing to use it, why am I going to want to? Another thing is, what do you think of people who don't believe in their products? If you don't believe in a product you are trying to sell, how can you honestly say it works? What does James teach as a relationship between faith and deeds? What arguments might James be countering? It does no good to say to someone that all you have to do is have faith and all will be well with your situation. If the Lord has brought someone in our path and we, know, and we know we should encourage them to call out to the Lord to help them, hasn't the Lord brought them in our path to extend help to them at that particular time? We can and should ask the Lord for godly discernment so that he will give us peace to know what to do. Why can't we separate faith from deeds? How do people try to separate these today? In the Life Application Study Guide, it says, While it is true that our good deeds can never earn salvation, true faith always results in a changed life and good deeds. James speaks against those who confuse mere intellectual approval with true faith. After all, even the demons know who Jesus is, but they don't obey him. True faith involves a commitment of your whole self to God. In what ways are Abraham and Rahab different? In what ways are they similar? James says Abraham was considered righteous for what he did in trusting God for that sacrifice. Paul says he was justified because he believed God. Romans 4, 1 through 5, James and Paul are not contradicting but complementing each other. Let's not conclude that the truth is a blending of these two statements. We are not justified by works in any way. True faith always results in deeds, but the deeds do not justify us. Belief brings us salvation. Active obedience demonstrate that our belief is genuine. Rahab lived in Jericho, a city the Israelites conquered as they entered the Promised Land. When Israel's spies came to the city, she hid them and helped them escape. In this way, she demonstrated faith in God's purpose for Israel. As a result, she and her family were saved when the city was destroyed. Hebrews 11.31 lists Rahab among the heroes of faith. If we are saved by faith alone, how are faith and deeds connected? The relationship between faith and deeds is one of the most important theological topics of our time. This was a major area of contention during the Reformation. The Bible clearly teaches in Christ alone, Romans 3:28, Ephesians 2:8 and 9, 
Galatians 2, 15 and 16, when James says that a person is not justified by faith alone, he is in contradicting Paul's teaching in Romans 3, 28. A man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. James had a passion to challenge, stir up, and admonish all those who believe in Christ to put their faith into practice. Anything less would not be worthy of God, of the God we serve and would not be genuine faith. When we become God's children by faith, God gives us new hearts, Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. And we become joined to Christ, John 15, 5. Because of this genuine faith in Christ, will always produce thoughts, words, and deeds that reflect God's character and his lordship. The relationship between faith and lifestyle is inseparable. It isn't that we are saved on the basis of what we do. Rather, our deeds are the inevitable result and evidence of God's redeeming work in us. True wisdom comes from God. James 3, 13 through 18 in the New Living Translation reads, If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Such things, I'm sorry, for wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace, loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Nehemiah 8.10 is where I found the meaning of joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Your strength comes from joy. That's what makes joy so crucial. Joy is so crucial because you can't live a life of faith without being strong in the Lord. So unless we want to limp along through life, we'd better focus on being joyful. The Bible, joy, is not the same thing as worldly happiness. It is not just a state of mind or a fleeting emotion. Joy is a very real force, and the devil doesn't have anything that can stand up against it. As we come to the conclusion of the study, my prayer for you all is that you would examine your hearts and minds before the Lord. Actually, we, I have to include myself here, and ask him to show us where we may have places of partiality and how we can demonstrate more good deeds towards others. Thank you for joining us this evening. May the Lord bless and watch over each one of you ladies and place the desire in your hearts to be the women God has called us to be through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for all that you give us, for the way you bless us even when we don't deserve it, Lord. I thank you so much, Father, that I am just so at peace right now, Lord, knowing that you took me through this time to share with these beautiful women, Lord. And I hope I did you justice, even in the tiniest way, Lord. I love you, I praise you, and I know these women love you so much, Father. And we look forward to the next study, Lord. May these ladies get home safely. In your precious name we pray. Amen.